Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host will spend all of July sprinting and playing volleyball. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host will spend his whole summer on his treadmill in the newly finished basement. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Thursday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking El Dorado Coffee Porter from the Walnut River Brewing Company. Aromatic as soon as I open the can, I can smell it. Uh, yeah, coffee porters, I, I've enjoyed pretty much every single porter we've drank on this show. So I am excited to get back to a thing I usually like. Plus, I have no idea who the Walnut uh, the Walnut Brewing Company is. I They're in Kansas, but I've never heard of them. Uh, I haven't either, so that's nice. Yeah. This month, we're gonna take a look at how different formats of a learning experience impact the quality of student recall across different ages. Later, we'll look at a review of some of the largest scale data collection on what the summer gap looks like for students of different backgrounds and what mistakes might be made in that data. Finally, our peer review takes a look at a listener suggestion for another way to think about how we interact with students in the classroom on a moment to moment basis. So let's get started. We're, we're, I don't even know how to start. It's, we've, had, we've had so many episodes in a row now with guests that it feels weird to be back to uh, just you and me doing what we do. And so I don't even know how to start without just talking to a third person. Uh, I think we just introduced the paper. Yeah, what did we read? The first paper we read was a study of retrieval processes in action memory for school-aged children. The impact of recall period and difficulty on action memory. Uh, this study is attributed to Badenlau, Corminuri, and Knopf, uh, 2018, from the Journal of Cognitive Psychology. And uh, this research was conducted in Tehran, Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, I slugged this paper because I know that retrieval and recall is something that you and I both thought a lot about um, when we had classrooms next to each other, and I know it's still a big part of what you do. What are we talking about when we talk about retrieval processes? Well, we were talking about being able to take the memories in our brain and pull them out. Uh, that's very basically, it's, it's just remembering stuff. Uh, that skill needs to be practiced, and so we've got to give our kids opportunities to do it, and I do that a lot in my classroom. In this, they tested different ways for students to process new information and then measured how well they were able to retrieve it under certain conditions. And so... I think it's worth, I made a note here because uh, I appreciated in their opening comments that they drew a distinction between recognition and recall. Yeah. I thought that was relevant. Uh, to, I thought that's a relevant dis distinction. Uh, I've kind of been using that language based on just my own naming them that way. Uh, so recognition is, is when, you know, something sparks in your brain and you're like, yeah, these two ideas go together. These words are associated sometimes all that is necessary to be successful on multiple choice exams. Yeah, some of the some of the more structured, more guided assessment topics, they don't require a lot of contextualization. There's a lot of prompting to go with it. So if you can place it anywhere, free association will get you there. For sometimes, you know, it's very difficult to write um, uh, multiple choice questions that really get at that deep under understanding. And so we have whole entire organizations dedicated to doing that. More on that later. Right. In this, you know, if I'm just a dude in the classroom and I know what my students, if I want to know what my students know, 
and I give them a multiple choice test that I just kind of whipped up, I'm not actually completely confident that those questions that I wrote are being able to tell the difference between what they know and what they recognize. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, I, I was having a conversation with a student at a conference presenting some research, uh, and he made this claim there was this enormous, enormous growth in student mastery based on a single multiple choice question that had been answered twice. Uh, but when I kind of pressed him for some context of how much do you really know about what the students know, um, we got, well, we weren't really sure about that. And so it was a really productive opportunity to think about the limitations of recognition. Uh, it's evidence, but it's really limited evidence. Alternative assessments, if we're not going to go with the very difficult to craft, excellent multiple choice questions, if we're going to go a different route, we can do one that is essentially the opposite. Instead of giving them a lot of prompts with a lot of options, we give them very few prompts with a lot of blank space, and we ask them to tell us what they know or explain this phenomenon or draw connections between the, these two things or what science interactions are involved in the, uh, that result in this phenomenon and let them go to town and try to convince us that they have an understanding of all of the moving parts. It's a big giant essay question, essentially, or if the students want to answer it schematically with thoroughly labeled diagrams, they can do it that way. Their job is to convince me that they understand all the nuances and how they fit together. It gives them more freedom of expression, and it gives me a more holistic ability to assess what they do and do not actually know, as opposed to what they recognize. So here's the reason why I didn't, why I'm hesitant to jump straight into the paper, because their paper makes several important assumptions for what they're actually looking into that I think are relevant before we actually get into their manipulation. Like, because they studied the effect of different mechanisms of encoding. Yeah, is what they cared about. Which but matters. encoding matters for recall and retrieval, which is so. That was why that was where I wanted to start. This study involved 400 kids. 108-year-olds, 110-year-olds, 112-year-olds, and 114-year-olds. They essentially gave these kids a bunch of lists. And the lists were associated with each other. The categories of the lists, I believe, was that one of them was about um, uh, hygiene tools, and one of them was just general work tools, and one of them was school supplies, and one of them was kitchen utensils. And so these lists of, of words that are associated in some way Different groups were presented these lists in different ways, or they interacted with the lists in different ways. They gave them lists to remember, and then they tested them. That's what happened. They gave them a bunch of lists to remember, and then they tested. What do you remember from those lists? Yeah, it's a it's a pretty typical, or it's it's a pretty vanilla like memory study, like giving them random words to remember. And we haven't gotten to the results yet, but I think that matters. I think the sterility of the content they were asking them to remember affects the results that they could have gotten. Uh, because really their question was, does it, is there a meaningful difference between whether students do something themselves or whether they observe somebody else doing the thing they are expected to remember? That's what they really wanted to know. Yeah. So in the control group, they were given the list and they were expected to repeat the items on the list as they given were. verbally, they were told the thing. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. And then they repeat it, which is established in the literature and in their introduction as that's not as good of a way to learn things. And we know that we're going to use it as a control, but we already know this isn't as good. Uh, then they had two different treatments. And I actually kind of don't understand what actually happened, to be honest. And maybe you can clarify this. There was one treatment where there were subject performed tasks and experimenter performed tasks. 
So the subject themselves were doing something with the items on the list, or the experimenter was doing something on the items of the list and they were being observed. But I don't know what those things are. Like one of the example phrases was cut with a knife. Did they actually give them a knife? I think that they did. I think they they did. Mining knives. One of them was- Or the experimenter was, yeah. Or, Or was it touch the book? And they literally had a book and the student literally touched the book when they when they heard the prompts touch the book. That was how I understood it, yeah. So they had a bunch of stuff in that room. Touch the map was touch the map and like stir the pot was stir the pot. And that's okay. what I that's what I thought. I, maybe they'll maybe they'll tell us that we were wrong, but that was how I took the, yeah, the writing. I didn't understand that all of this material was there, and I was imagining all of this being mine. I, I don't think it really matters. The key was that there is verbal encoding and action encoding. I, I don't. Yeah, so, and action encoding is subdivided into: Do I do the action for myself, or do I see somebody else do the action? Yeah. Regardless of what the action was, yeah. there was an action involved that was personal or vicarious. Yeah. So, in essence, they wanted to see if children of different ages see different um, learning gains as observed by re- by retrieval after these actions? And does it affect the speed with which they retrieve this information after the actions? So if I am an older child, having done something for myself, do I retrieve more or less, faster or slower? Versus if I'm a younger child, having observed somebody else do it, do I retrieve it faster or slower and more or less? They did a bunch of tests. They gave them a bunch of lists. They made them do stuff with the lists or talk about them. Well, they found that older children outperformed the younger children pretty much across the board. Weird. Yeah, that's not that's not a surprise. We get better at what we do, and they've had more time to uh, remember. And, well, in uh, brain development, yeah, their brains exactly. eight year olds versus fourteen year olds are very different. Exactly. And that didn't surprise the authors either. They're yeah. like, yeah, this is true. Moving on. Both the action conditions out. I didn't have the intuition to predict this. The well, because I don't know what I think about it. The the distinctions are so slight. So in this study, the younger children saw a very modest, albeit statistically significant by their definition, increase in retrieval in the younger children if they observe somebody else doing it versus if they do it themselves. Is that important is a different question than is that significant, and I don't know that because I'm not an expert in eight-year-olds. Whereas the older children showed a increase in retrieval when they did the task themselves associated with the items on the list, as opposed to watch someone else do them. You got to let your older kids do stuff is really the takeaway. Uh, yeah. And that's intuitive to, to both of us as high school teachers. We're like, yeah, let students and do things. Another brick in the well-paved road of things that I should be doing better for about five years now. So... Yeah, this is just another, do stuff. An, another another brick in my pack of shame that is my weakest part is the concrete experiences in my classroom. Make them do things. Uh, but it's, it's, it's consistent. It is far better for a student of any age to see something be enacted, either themselves or in somebody else, versus being told it. Yes. And that's still relevant in a lot of classrooms. And not only just told it, but for them saying it out loud. Because the trigger yeah. was, we tell it to you, and then you repeat it out loud. Yeah. It's not just passive listening. It's passive repeating. Uh, but it's it, that's not efficient. I, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. We can do better. 
Yeah, but there's some subtlety with the younger students because it is not clear. And as they said in their in their study, there is a statistically significant, whatever that means, right? There's some there's some complexity in the statistics there that's not worth getting into. But they call it significant by their definition, and that it's true that the younger students are more successful on their recall and their retrieval if they are observing it versus if they're doing it themselves. And then they paint a picture of uh, those younger students because of the state of their brain maturation. they have more cognitive resources available to devote to encoding if they are not having to manage their own behavior in doing it themselves. And that was really interesting because I had never considered that before. I, I, I have thought about available, you know, cognitive load. I have thought about what resources they have available, but at that younger age, do they have few enough resources generally that they are better off observing a larger fraction of the time than I would be inclined to give them? That's, I haven't thought about that before. And I, I need to go find other information on that to triangulate this because this is the only study that i've seen where i've even had cause to think about that yeah i liked it i didn't have any conflict with that analysis very young children watch interactions to develop social value for those interactions they're not necessarily practiced at being autonomous Mm -hmm. but by the time they get to middle school that's all that they want Well, what I wrestle with is it gets back to this is a very sterile, very artificial, very contrived experiment. And so, yes, their retrieval is is better for these meaningless tasks, for these just simple. Do you remember these things with no context or value that we're asking you to remember um, not long after you've seen them? But that's not but that's not what we're doing in an education space. So if you remember a little less but it is more applied and it's more interconnected to the rest of your schema and it's more durable long-term. And so it facilitates greater creativity or more insights or more transferability. That's far more valuable, I will argue, than if you remember remember a little more, a little longer, but it's not as flexible and it doesn't support as much creativity. And that's something that this study did not, it wasn't designed to address. And I think that's a limitation of a lot of the memory research because it has to be so uh, artificial to meet the experimental design. I don't think I accept out of hand that we should just let our younger students observe everything just because they can remember meaningless lists a little longer. Right. There are some other considerations in the classroom that are mean that, uh, that matter and differ from the design. Yeah. It's kind of, um, I don't want to drum up a whole big can of worms here by using the phrase learning styles. It's kind of uh, it's kind of like that in the sense that okay, this is effective and this is effective, but really we want our students to be having as many access points to the information as possible. So they should have an opportunity to hear the information, and then they should have an opportunity to speak the information, and then they should have the opportunity to use the information, and they should have the opportunity to watch people using the information. All of the things should be involved to get as much synaptic firing with these ideas happening in their brain in as many places as possible in their brain. So it's it's kind of a, if you are stressed and you have to make a choice, we can only do something or see something, and then we've got to be done with it. Well, I guess if you've got eight-year-olds and you have to make that sacrifice, show them how it's done. And if you've got 14 year olds and you have to make that sacrifice, make them do it. But really for a robust scheme of development in their head, 
they need multiple access points for this information. They need to talk about it a lot. They need to see it a lot. They need to hear it a lot. They need to do it a lot. So it's kind of moot because if you're a good practitioner, you're giving opportunities for them to do all of those things anyway. Uh, yeah, and that's a that's another thing that I wanted to at least uh, point out was all of this is saying it's good if students remember everything we tell them, but that's not true either. Uh, forgetting is also an important part of expertise development, right? That pruning away the unnecessary details and uh, you know extraneous information to highlight the really important processes and patterns and um, connections is a part of what experts do. And you can only do that by forgetting things. Uh, the waiting to different pathways only occurs when they are forgotten and then reestablished because they mattered and they need to be reestablished. And so to treat forgetting as the enemy wholesale is to misunderstand what it means to develop a robust schema. Yeah. And so forgetting is also, well, that needs to be there. Like if we remembered everything we ever saw, which is a thing that, uh, that afflicts a very small number of individuals in humanity, they're not ultra geniuses. They really struggle with prioritization and with meaning making because it's so it's necessary to understanding. Yeah. So, Yes, we want them to remember some things, but also, yes, we want them to forget some things. So multimodal instruction is important, and the authors point that out. Another thing that did uh, possibly affect me, say, so I guess I'm getting to the shoulds here. One, the should that has been a should on my back for a long time, give them more opportunity to do things. I did do a long-term uh, ocean acidification uh, activity where we revisited it every Thursday over the entire course of the third and even into the fourth quarter where my students were measuring a pH and shell mass in different uh, materials. And, and of course, they crushed the ocean acidification part of the uh, climate change discussion. So yeah, I mean, I, I have anecdotal evidence in my life. There's a ton of research. Do more things with kids. Right. But there was something else in here that I thought was interesting that kind of uh, affects me in a different way. I teach general ninth grade, general biology to ninth graders, and I teach uh, college biology, essentially molecular and cell biology, to 13th graders. And I make them retrieve at the beginning of class, what do you know on these topics? And I generally go until most of them have stopped. And that can be with my, when we get running and we get the class culture going in my college biology class, that can easily be 15 or 20 minutes. Well, they will just write about what they know for 15 or 20 minutes. And I feel like I feel great that they're all doing it. But in my general biology class, they'll sometimes stop after like four to six minutes. And and there's a lot of things that go on there. But one of the findings of the study is that it takes younger kids longer to retrieve. So I may be misidentifying they've given up when actually I need to stick it out another four minutes so that they can gather all the other parts that they're still working on and put them together and then commit them to writing. I may be cutting them short because I'm impatient when this data says it takes them longer. And that that was another kind of consideration for my practice that I'm going to take from this. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, there was one thing that it wasn't really the purpose of this study, but it was relevant to their design that... Um, re-emphasize something to me that matters. And that's that uh, how we obtain assessment information affects what we get from that assessment. Uh, they specifically describe the influence of the recall task on student memory. 
And they said they, they, they observe that in their design by having both an immediate free recall and like a final, later, more challenging free recall. Uh, and the results were very different. The, on the harder retrieval task, they retrieved a lot less. And that kind of dovetails with what I was saying a moment ago about the importance of forgetting. If we are afraid of having our students not know something, we're going to miss out on an opportunity for them to emphasize and prioritize that information. And so there is a role for different mechanisms of assessment. We need to be cognizant of how we are asking our students to know something. If I am only ever doing these highly challenging, uh, you know, interleaved or interspersed free recall opportunities, they're going to miss out on an opportunity to remember some things that they're forgetting and, and hold those over to the next assessment. And vice versa, it's also true. If I'm only doing recognition assessments, they will never have an opportunity to forget the things that don't matter and develop some hierarchy to their schema. And so that was, a, that was something that was a present in their design that sort of reemphasized to me what we see is informed by how we look. And we need to be aware of that. We need to think about that as we choose different assessment methods in our classrooms. Uh, there was one line. We might be closer to that. There was one line that was really interesting to me. I don't know what it means. Yeah, let's see it. Let's actually... um, but they observed that the enactment effect, which is the description for this bump in retrieval for things that they see or do themselves, it was the strongest in the last minute of recall. So as they get deeper and deeper into their retrieval attempt, the distinction between whether they saw it or whether, whether it was enacted or whether it was simply verbalized gets bigger and bigger until the end. And at the end, it is the, it is the biggest. And I don't know what that means, but that seems interesting to me. Uh, because just eyeballing the data, a lot of what they retrieve, they retrieve in the first 30 seconds. Yeah. And then if there are differences in mode, it matters later. I wonder I wonder if there's sort of like this like checklist in the brain. I'm just totally making stuff up, by the way. So don't anybody quote me on any of this. Where the brain is like, okay, it goes from these these instant responses first. So now, now I gotta go dig around here in the what have I seen people do phase and get 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 anything relevant to that. And then after I exhaust that, I'm gonna go digging around in the what have I done myself phase and pull that stuff out from there. Uh, that might explain that, you know, little kids, they never even get to the what have I done myself phase to pull stuff out. And uh, older kids, uh, they they burn through both of those phases pretty quickly and then spend a lot of time digging for things that they've done themselves. So I don't know. Uh, I'm just making stuff up. But uh, yeah, and that's sort of consistent with how I was imagining this with um, the benefit of the enacted conditions being that it is more interconnected in their brains, they're encoding it relative to more uh, types of sensory input. And so as I go looking in my head to try and find what else can I add, well, there are more hooks and so op more opportunities to stumble across new information in the enacted stuff that I'm just not going to find in the verbal stuff. I'm either have it or I don't. Uh, so that that's a compelling narrative. I wonder if there's any evidence to support that. Or, um, you know, contradict it. We want to read that too. Yeah, true. Yeah, what's... What is truth? Or what do we not know? Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm starting a PhD. I need something to research. Maybe I can go do that. Our, our next segment is all about things we don't know. Now we do other stuff. In recognition of the summer we have just reached, 
We read, do test score gaps grow before, during, or between the school years, measurement artifacts, and what we can know in spite of them. That was by Von Hippel and Hamrock, published in 2019 in Sociological Science. Yeah. They discussed that our methods for analyzing tests and constructing tests have changed over time. Yeah, specifically constructing. This is about the high stakes standardized assessments that get given broadly, and we use them to draw, you know, large, uh, wide-reaching conclusions about how students learn uh, within our societies. Uh, basically, they had three major tests, and uh, essentially one of them was analyzed exclusively. Analyzed and written exclusively in this older statistical method. One of them was exclusively done in this newer statistical method. And one of them had enough information that it had been prior analyzed in the older method and then analyzed again with the newer method. So we have four analyses of the achievement gap over time across different demographics. And we and they attempted to uh, compare these to see if we can learn anything about the achievement gap over time. Well, and it wasn't necessarily just about learning about the achievement gap. The The summer slump is something that gets described sometimes in uh, political discussion, legislation, policymaking. It's a description that students are learning during the school year and we're doing what we can to make sure that all students can learn and that all students have the same uh, opportunities to succeed. And then during the summer, there is disparity in what happens. And some students, particularly students um, of means or students who have societal advantages, they grow or at least they they have less uh, a reduced loss in understanding of the school relevant topics versus students of disadvantage or students uh, from low SES. Uh, they have greater drop in what they know or um, what gets measured on school assessments because of the lack of opportunities for summer things. And I think this is not the first time we've discussed this on the show. I think there was yeah. an episode where we uh, reviewed some of that research before, uh, but this one sheds some new uh, shadows yes. over those findings. So people make claims about that summer slump. Uh, some of them say that it's really big. Some of them say that it doesn't exist at all. Some of them are in the middle. And so this paper was about what do we actually know about the summer slump, and more generally about the achievement gap based on these standardized assessments that people frequently point to because there are some problems with the tests that we know about and that we can describe for you here and now. And that's what the paper was. Now we can even try to control for them, account for them, and use uh, better statistical practices. Yeah, so, they did. They got at it stats-wise. And I was actually really heartened. Like, this is a pretty long paper because the stats section is pretty thick, pretty meaty. But I was reading it with increasing anticipation about revelatory uh, information. Like we're going to have a big payoff because of all of this work they're doing. And I'm really getting excited. I'm really getting drummed up. And well, no, not really. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, there's some things, but there was not the payoff that I wanted. What was the payoff that you wanted? Oh, I wanted clear, consistent, concise, information but then that, you shouldn't have read this paper yeah, yeah. That is you not, just kept repeating the things that people are already saying yeah but that's not what it is as i have actually said a lot this month of may things are a lot more complicated than they appear what i wanted was that all of the new analyses would 
be consistent with each other. That's what I wanted. And we can say, oh yeah, old stance is bad, new stance is good. We have a new streamlined, updated picture and all of the new analyses are in accordance with each other. And this is the picture of the achievement gap. And I did not get that. No, you didn't. What did I get, Ralph? In the broadest strokes, what they found was it is typical for there to be claims of enormous and widening achievement gaps across all sorts of metrics, across SES, across race, across ethnicity, across a school wealth and school location. And what they found when they went back and controlled for some of these uh, testing artifacts was that most of that either is not actually there or is not nearly as dramatic as has been advertised. There may be some subtleties, but it is not it's not the earth-shaking, cataclysmic problem that gets advertised sometimes. The greatest period of gap growth is in the first five years of life. Yeah, that was a big deal. That, that part was, was consistent. Yeah, especially before students get to formal schooling. And then in the first, like, three years, like K to second grade, we're seeing big impacts um, or the, the emergence of a gap. Yes. Which means, and I'm, gonna, I'm jumping straight to shoulds here. There are more things we want to talk about in this paper, but jumping straight to shoulds. This reasserts that young childhood programs are worth investing, implementing, and improving. And though we can invest in successful gap remediation for later years, that can close the gap. But the more we can do to prevent the gap, uh, the better we're going to have games. Mm -hmm. So let's get those kids between the ages of zero and five. Which is highly relevant to the life that you are living right now, Mr. Ralph. Sure is. Unfortunately, the summer learning effect uh, was inconsistent. Well, see, I, so I wrestle with that. There are lots of truths that I don't like, but revising to be more in alignment with reality is not necessarily unfortunate. I, so as somebody who aspires to be some form of, of a statistician, I think that a value of seeing the gap or the widening gap disappearing in some settings because of some of these mistakes that are made in, in delivering and interpreting these standardized assessments is that we can be more precise. Yeah, because they're the best the best measurement did show um, a seasonal difference yes. for SES, did show a seasonal difference for maternal education subtly, like a, a subtle, a, a, a but subtle. significant. But that was not consistent amongst all of the modern stats practices. So we need to get. But the, the difference wasn't only stats either. The difference there were Test there were considerable uh, sample size yeah. and who was being measured. And the detail the details of the statistics doesn't matter to a classroom teacher listening to this podcast right this second. But what does matter is some of the things that we say matter because of some of these mistakes in test interpretation. I think are important because if you allow yourself to fall victim to some of these bad interpretations, you can say anything is important. Right. When I walked away from this, it was like shrug. I'm not confident about anything now. So except help them between the ages of zero and five. Well, and I think that's what I think that's actually a takeaway. Yeah. And it's I'm not going to make a whole bunch of enemies saying this, and so I feel uh, a little bit saying it, but. Large scale, broadly applied standardized tests don't have a lot of utility to me as a teacher trying to make decisions about how I help the students in my building. That's not controversial. Oh man! But here we are. Thanks, man. I appreciate you saying it. 
that's, I hadn't gotten to that point yet. I was just like, there are children, let's help them. But you're right. That's what this is saying. That's what this is saying, is that our statistical practices and our test construction are not reliable enough to get meaningful consequence to these. At the national scale. At the national scale. These things might be knowable, but this isn't the way to know them. And alternatively, it's a way to, it's a way to actively promote misinformation. There was a phrase in there that literally blew my mind. I tweeted about it because I just sat here and stared at the wall for like five minutes after like the gravity of it settled on me. Uh, the authors point out in one of their descriptions of the fallacies of this analysis that if you have uh, an instrument with a low reliability, and so I'm applying this and almost all the variants, like the student distribution is just random. But as they get older, the reliability goes up, which means as students learn more and they get older, they are more likely to do well if they're actually knowing things. They're more likely to continue to do randomly or poorly if they don't know things. If reliability increases over time, the gaps will spuriously increase yeah. just because that's how the arithmetic works, which means if you have a bad instrument early, you will see gaps even with no changes in what's going on. So you will see a phantom pattern in bad data and a phantom pattern that is easy to make arguments about. And that is hugely important. If you're collecting bad data, you will see ghosts in the data and it will be compelling. It will be so tempting to take actions on those bad, on those ghosts that you think you're seeing in the data. And that's dangerous. So if there is a takeaway, I think the takeaway is that discussions of reliability and validity are not just for statisticians. If you want to use standardized test data for anything, I feel like this paper lays out a very concrete example for why you have to know about the instrument you're using. Because if you use them poorly, you will make bad decisions that have actual consequences. And that's not what I thought I was going to get out of this paper when I slugged it. Um, yeah. So I want to talk about the summer slump, but the summer slump may or may not be real at all. Right. At least we have not effectively consistently measured it. At the largest scales. At the national scale. I've gone ahead and added a link to information on all three of these broad standardized tests um, on the show notes for this episode. So if you want to know more about these standardized assessments, or if you want to go looking for what data your state uses, that's available on the show's website, because if we're going to try to make decisions or claims based on the standardized data, we need to know the limitations and the power of our standardized data. We're in this together. So our peer review is once again a response to last month's episode from Meg Richard. She responded, I just finished listening and I'm wondering if you have read any of Dr. Deborah Ball's work on discretionary spaces. It seemed like it might tie into the second portion, which was our conversation about metacognition and supporting student metacognition in high and low achieving classrooms. And so she pointed us to a, a blog post from the Hessinger Report, uh, 20 judgments a teacher makes in one minute and 28 seconds. Uh, she asked us what we think. So. We both read it. What do we think? I, I felt a lot of uh, confusion when I was reading this paper because I don't think I was the audience. There's an, a video associated with this article. One segment of the video is closely tied to the article. 
and is being referenced in the article, but the video is quite long. And that section is a narrative, a classroom narrative of what I believe was a middle school teacher. It looked like middle school uh, teaching math. And she had her students and she had one up at the whiteboard working through how to solve this problem. And uh, that student was doing it coolly and confidently, uh, but was had some errors in her analysis. And another student in the classroom raised her hand, was acknowledged, began to start, then kind of withdrew. She got encouraged to keep going. And she asked the question, why one seventh? Which was the uh, incorrect answer that the student at the board had given. Right. And then another student uh, made a comment, and this student like uh, started playing with her hair, and they giggled and said something to each other. The video was paused, and there was an analysis. And the teacher said, at this point, uh, there are three common responses to the circumstances. Verbally discipline the student that was asking the question because they were teasing the student who was up at the board, or... Re, to kind of dismiss the student who was asking the question and redirect from that student, uh, saying that, well, that student already explained, so we can move on. Or, again, redirect from the student to the rest of the class, asking, what do the others think? And as I was reading this, I was very confused. Like, I don't know well, how to uh, first, first off, I mean, we both teach in Olathe. And so you don't, and I didn't, teach very many students who identified as black. That's true. Because I think that's the, the message of the article is the behavior gets interpreted different ways depending on the perception of the teacher. And so I think what the article was highlighting was especially a, a middle school female and uh, a person who is black. Both of those settings provide an opportunity for a stereotype and so even though what the student is doing is one, not only not only appropriate, but the best thing. Yeah. A student asking, why did you do this thing is literally the very best thing that can happen in a math classroom. I loved it. It can be interpreted with uh, malicious intent as the result of instructor bias or just mistaken assumptions, perhaps, and that we need to be really intentional about checking that. Because that is something that happens a lot. It shouldn't happen at all, and it happens a lot. Where we mistakenly believe that an initial, as you pointed out, uh, discomfort, an initial, uh, well, I'm not really sure how to point out that you've made a mistake. Uh, I have a different answer than what it feels like most of the room has, and so perhaps I'm wrong. And so I, I'm navigating that emotion as well. And so I'm just trying to ask, why did you get this? But my coping strategies can be misinterpreted by the teacher and that is the teacher's job to check that because what is actually being asked, as you pointed out, what is actually being asked, why did you get one seventh? That is amazing. Yeah. If we just had teachers asking, why is this a thing? That's all we would have to do all day. Like yeah. that is the very best thing. And so check your assumptions about why they're behaving the way they are, because if they are asking the right questions, we need to nurture that because it's good for everyone. And especially, I think, uh, if I'm interpreting Meg's intent correctly, the that why did you get one seven? That is promoting metacognition. Why did you get this answer? Mm -hmm. But if we mistakenly interpret that as some sort of social cue or some sort of social interaction as opposed to an academic or cognitive interaction, but man, they're well, they're teasing. Why did you get that? I'm trying to put you down, I'm trying to make you feel bad about that. Um, then I'm going to be quashing exactly the metacognitive discussion 
that is associated with high achieving classrooms. And you're not going to be promoting the classroom culture of dialogue and exchange and support mm -hmm. of each other that that opportunity presents. So I think it's a really, I think it's a really important um, article. I'll admit, I was actually a little disappointed that the author didn't make a mistake in that moment because I think being able to see a video of an instructor actually making that mistake and being able to analyze, like, gosh, I, I wish that I wouldn't have done that. Here's the consequences of that mistake, and here's what it could have been. Alternatively, is is useful. I gave a presentation on that last week about we videotaped, we took some video in a classroom where the instructors were doing a guest lesson, and we made some mistakes. And we showed that video to our students and it was really transformative for our students. It's like, oh gosh, they're the master teachers also make mistakes sometimes. And well, golly, that's something we should think about also. And we should like reflection matters. They're thinking about how to improve their practice. Maybe I can do the same. And so I, I actually, when I first started reading this article, I was like, yeah, I really appreciate it. We're looking at video and we're going to make a mistake. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to think about, it. oh, they did the thing that is good. Well, that is good. It would have been a little more relatable if they'd made the mistake that they're trying to describe. Uh, yeah, oh, no, well. I, I, yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally on board with every, everything that happened in this in this narrative. I, I think there was a line in it that I didn't like. The challenge for us is not to leave to chance that teachers were, will exercise good discretion. I suppose now that we've had this discussion, my response to that line has changed. And I now understand the value of this article. I don't think she intended it the way that you don't like, but I understand that it can be interpreted the way that you don't like. Um, saying that we need to control the behavior of teachers so that they can't make this mistake. Well, we, but it's I'm, not I'm our in, job I'm to control I'm in a moment teachers. of changing yeah. right now yeah. that I'm not necessarily interpreting it that way yeah. anymore. Uh, she gives a quote uh, a few paragraphs uh, earlier uh, where she says, we need to scrutinize habits that we've come to assume are just neutral practices that aren't neutral at all. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's true. we got to change ourselves to be consistent with the research base. And the research base says some demographics are treated unfairly in classrooms. Intent matters. How's the beer? Uh, aromatic, bitter. Not quite as strong of a coffee flavor as some of the others that we've had yeah. in my experience. Light on the coffee. Uh, what's the? I was looking for the um six point six. The alcohol content. It felt. It feels even lighter than that. Honestly, it does. It does. This is like a. Uh, if someone is wanting to push their palate into exotic porters this is a good one for that yeah it's like a like a light porter yeah it's, yeah. it's a it's a it's a subtle it's a subtle portal porter because uh, some porters can be pretty harsh mm -hmm. and this this is not one of those yeah it's good it's fine it's, mm -hmm. i'm gonna drink another one when as soon as we get off the air <laughs> I will. uh yeah it's good uh i I like a little more to it personally. Yeah. And so like given a choice of a whole bunch of porters, I probably wouldn't pick this one, but there's nothing wrong with this one. Yeah, I agree. I am a tail individual. So I'm okay with that. This is a fine porter. Yeah. Thanks once again for tuning in. We appreciate all of you out there. We are wrapping up our second season. Can you believe we've been at this for two years now? Almost. Oh, actually, no, it has been two years because we started in the summer with that little like uh, mini season primer. So 
Yeah, we were recording by this point two yeah, years ago. Two yeah, two years ago. Crazy. Yeah, it doesn't feel like that long. And so we're going to be wrapping up our second season here in the next couple of months. But remember that every month we really like hearing from all of you. So if you have something that you want us to read, if you have something that you think we should read or another comment, you can share all of that on our website, twopintplc.com, in addition to finding all the references that we make on the show. And we want to hear from you just because we're wrong about things. So tell us that too. We yeah. need to know. Yeah, plug in. This is better with all of you. Uh, so keeping that in mind. As we pursue growth. Discuss research. And struggle well.